1: Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. The day after Gary Hutch died, I was actually at Dublin Airport. I was on my way to Malaga to investigate really what had happened. And it was early, 7am, one of those red-eye flights. I was wandering around, I got some coffees and I sat down with the photographer and I was sort of rooting through my handbag and the next thing, this thing caught my eye, just the corner of my eye and it was sort of this grey colour, it was out of place. I looked again and over where the gold circle passengers were now, they're the first classers, I was in economy of course, was these three people and they all came into vision at the one time. There was this sort of big burly guy in a Canada Goose jacket with orange skin. There was a very glamorous looking woman. And then there was this guy in double grey. And I just looked and realised it was Daniel Kinahan. It was a very strange situation. I was about to board a flight with him to Spain, which was the seat of his power. He was the head of the Irish Mafia and his best friend had just been killed, and he was the chief suspect for directing that murder. So uh, it was one hell of a flight.
0: The Kinahan Gang is one of the biggest drug cartels in the world. But how did Daniel Kinahan make his way from the streets of Dublin to become a narco? I'm Fiannaud Sheen, and you're listening to the Indo-Daily. Today I'm joined by Nicola Tallant, Sunday World Investigations editor and author of Clash of the Clans, to talk about the rise of the Irish Mafia. When drug squad detectives raided the luxury apartment at Fairview last September, they found Serrier and Dubliner Christopher Kinahan with over £100,000 worth of heroin, some of it ready for distribution to other dealers in the city. Subsequent investigations revealed that Kinahan, who lived in a tenement building in the York Street area of the city, had rented the luxury apartment for £220 a month. Gardee believed the apartment was the nerve centre of a big drugs ring.
1: So Christy Kinahan, as you heard in that clip, was arrested in the late 1980s. You have to remember, that was a time when we were still engulfed in the heroin epidemic. So heroin was the drug to sell if you wanted to make money. And he had actually taken over the market from Larry Dunn, who had famously been imprisoned, warning about who would come after him. Um, but Kinnahan, unlike others that were in the drug world and had seen the opportunities in drugs, from the late 70s into the 1980s uh, wasn't from a working class environment. He was actually a middle class guy who'd been brought up in a very structured, stable family. He'd been educated. He was good at everything he put his hands to and he had choices in life. And most of his contemporaries within the criminal underworld would have come from very, very poor backgrounds really. And they went into crime probably initially because they had to. So it kind of made him a little bit of a cuckoo in the nest. Um, He had had a relationship with a woman called Jean Boylan who lived in Oliver Bond Flats. They had split, but they had two boys, Daniel and Christopher Jr. She reared them in Oliver Bond. Now, she was actually very anti-drugs and would help out the addicts and in, in community projects and all the rest of it. But clearly, it was difficult for the boys growing up to turn their back on this father, who was such a significant player on the scene, even though he went to jail at that point for a few years, he used it to his advantage and he met with a a guy called John Cunningham in jail and together they started what would become the Irish Mafia. After his relief, he moved to Amsterdam and started to set up a headquarters in Spain. And as Daniel and Christopher Jr., entered their teenage years. They are in based in Oliver Bond, where they're they're forming their own gang. Um, they have reached out to contacts in the Hardwick Street Flats area. They have friends in the North Inner City. And these are a group of a young kind of brat pack that come together. The Kinnehan's stand out because of their father's connections in Europe and because he's a wholesaler and I suppose together they form for the first time as one united group. Dublin was always, you know, worked in pockets where where you had gangs in different parts of the city. But when the Kinnehan's came along, this was an opportunity for everybody to join forces, almost like the five families. And they realised that, you know, graduation was in Spain.
0: So you had a a, a fully-fledged international drug operation.
1: You did, absolutely. Born and bred in Dublin. Born and bred in Dublin and making waves in in the Netherlands. He just grows and grows. He seems to be always lucky, always in the right place at the right time. And moving from heroin, they were entering this young brat pack who were coming up under him. They were entering the gold rush of cocaine. So there was money beyond their wildest dreams there.
0: And at that point, is is Dublin still the the nexus, the most important part of the operation, or do, or do you feel that Dublin just became a, a kind of a subsidiary of a of a wider European network?
1: Yeah, well, Dublin was very important to them. Definitely, they had established a very serious operation here, and they were also around from two thousand onwards. They were taking over Ireland. They were taking over the whole of Ireland, um, but they had. Uh, I suppose you'd call them uh, franchises across the UK. They had them in Scotland. They had them in Liverpool, in very significant territories in the UK, which would actually be the likes of Liverpool would be similar in scale in its drug market to the whole of Ireland. You know. And at what point did he did he pass on the family? I mean, succession is the, the most popular TV show on, on
0: on around at the moment. When when did it go from one generation to the next?
1: That's yeah, that's interesting because that seems to happen around 2014, down in Spain. So they're very established down there. We have been told they were shut down in 2010 by the Spanish and, and other European uh, police forces went against them in a thing called Operation Shovel, which was a disaster. Um, they were back up and running in 2012, despite the fact that we were told the Irish Mafia had been shut down. And Kinnahan Senior goes to jail again in Belgium, in and around 2014. And that seems to be a moment for him that he decides he wants out. He doesn't want to be doing this anymore because he's actually in and out of jail like, um, you know, constantly throughout his career while Daniel hasn't been. He certainly has. And he doesn't like jail, Kinahan Senior, at all. He's a really sophisticated lifestyle at this point. And he, I think, just gets fed up with it and hands over the reins to Daniel who wants to be bigger and better than the father before him.
0: Nicola, within 18 months, effectively, of Daniel taking over the cartel, we have the start of what becomes known as the Kinnan-Hutch feud with the murder of Gary Hutch. Gardaí say they're concerned about the possibility of retaliation after the murder of gangland criminal Gary Hutch. The 34-year-old was shot dead on the Costa del Sol in Spain yesterday. Gardaí say he knew his life was in danger. Gary Hutch, a well-known criminal, nephew of Jerry DeMonk Monk Hutch. Why was he killed and where did where did things go from there?
1: Yeah, I suppose you can see for the decades that the father, Christy Kinnahan Senior, is in charge, there's stability. And as soon as Daniel Kinnahan takes the reins, there is problems. Now, obviously, he wasn't just killed in a flash. It wasn't just a one-day thing. When we look back on it, we can see what's going on there in the background that leads to that. There's accusations of touting. There is accusations that there have been... Uh, money's gone missing. There is... Um, Claims then from the that, that basically that Daniel Kinnan has made new friends as such and he has he has ambitions that go beyond and maybe is leaving behind some of the old pals from Dublin. Maybe there's no room for them in the new in the new place. Um we see in recent times from DEA um documents that uh Daniel Kinnan is at this point making connections with some other mafias down in the Costa. He is creating what is now known as the super cartel. And this was mafias Mafia is coming together and to bring in bigger loads of cocaine. And this is all happening just before Gary Hutch is murdered.
0: From there then we, we get into a, a retaliatory cycle.
1: Look, following Gary Hutch's murder everybody was, I think anybody who knew anything about the criminal underworld was very aware that this was no ordinary murder and there would be a retaliation, or it wasn't just going to be left as was. Coming up to the new year of 20, 2015 into 2016, there was an attempt on the life of the monk in Lanzarote. Um, and then in February, there was the Regency. The guy leaned over the receptionist's desk and pointed the gun at me.
0: So I was looking down the barrel of his gun and I was shouting, don't shoot, don't shoot. He said something to me that I can't quite remember it was just maybe two words. And then he left again. Um, the guy who was shot right beside me at that time That that is the man who's no doubt. Three men appeared, coming in a side door, fully dressed in guardy uniforms, absolutely fully dressed with guardy in front of them, in front of their jackets and the back of their jackets. And uh, then I noticed they had three shotguns. Uh, A number of shots went off. There was one man standing at reception who was
1: shot. And I mean, this was an explosion of violence between the two sides. This was an attempt to take out Daniel Kinnehan. It failed and um, it resulted in the feud, as we call it. But as you can see, if you delve back into it, the feud has developed long before that moment in the Regency Hotel. Um, it's probably the most significant moment in gangland history in this country. You had two sides going to war who were once one grouping who knew everything about one another, who knew everything about one another's relatives, where they lived, A very dangerous situation. Family members were were seen as fair game, anybody was seen as fair game, A very dangerous, volatile time. And I think for the first time in, in probably since the murder of Veronica Gearan, it was enough for the politicians to stand up and realise that what we were entering was an area that was bringing us towards a narco-terrorism. You were seeing drug gangs believing that they could take up Kalashnikovs in crowded places in this country. And they were also seeing themselves as being above and beyond the law and the state.
0: The north side of Dublin effectively became a a battle zone Mm -hmm. for uh, quite uh, a period of time. That, That... Probably the whole year of, of twenty sixteen was just dominated by armed police on the street, um, murders taking place in 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 broad daylight. But the feud effectively it ultimately became a massacre. It it became very one sided. The 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 Kinnahan cartel just looking to to wipe out um, member, as you say members of the Hutch organization and people just associated with them. Um, innocent people get, getting caught up uh, as well. How many people ultimately died in what became known as the Hinn and Dutch feud?
1: Well, 18 to 20, some of the murders are a little bit more complex than just they were totally feud-related, but 18 to 20 people, and that seems to be actually a kind of an average almost nearly in these feud situations before they abate. I think there's complex reasons why it was so uneven, but by and large, you know, to put it basically, the Kinnahans had more money, and what they did was they threw money at Dublin, and they were paying retainers to people uh, who were neighbours of of some of their former friends, now their rivals, and they were paying them money to keep an eye out, to spot, to watch for when there was an opportunity to kill. They were paying hit teams to. They, there was cars actually. I mean, we wouldn't have even realised we'd be walking down the street, oblivious to the fact that there was cars parked up. They were ready to go, and you know there was guns in the back of them. They were ready to go and assassinate people at all times. So that's really what became unfair. And also, I think Jerry Hutch went to look for some backing and didn't get it. Places that he thought he would, everybody who he looked for backing from said they wanted to remain neutral, and their neutrality, in a way, empowered the Kinnahans because it was just a very unfair, uneven battle, and it was a massacre.
0: Nick, I suppose the the Regency incident does though bring to public attention Daniel Kennan's involvement in in boxing and his his MTK organisation and and gyms and boxing
1: promotion. Why does he get involved in that? Well, I think it's one of his passions in life, basically. And I suppose if you have the money to pump into one of your passions, you will. Uh, 2012 out in Spain was the first time we realised he had a boxing club. Um, I was actually out there investigating the Kinahan mob and discovered this, you know, little gym down a laneway near in, in of Benoose, and it was Macle- Matthew Macklin's MGM. But when we looked, we could see that Daniel Kinnehan was the one that was dealing with the, the builders, while initially he stayed in the background with all the functions and the openings, he slowly kind of gained confidence and started coming to the forefront. And they started signing all these boxers, all these really well-known boxers. Then the boxers started saying that Daniel Kinnahan was their manager, and they started. And slowly his name went into sort of legitimacy within that boxing world. And of course, because
0: he has the money, basically to, to hire them at better rates than other than other managers can and he has the money to pump into to promotion of them as well. Well
1: that's what you would think now to try and, does he do that because he claims, no he doesn't, I mean they claimed that MGM was initially set up as a, a non-for-profit organisation in Spain there's never been any explanation where the money came for it, I think by 2016 um around the time it moved its headquarters from Spain to Dubai, it had 100 boxers signed, which is unprecedented. And at that point and shortly after the Regency, we're told that it sold outright to Sandra Vaughan, a businesswoman, and that Kinnahan has nothing more to do with it, although he he does slip in and out of publicity around it for the, the next few years. But yeah, ultimately it was his passion. And um, I think, um, you know, he has ambitions and he has ambitions to be somebody very special within the world of boxing. Interestingly, after the Regency, when you were having this massacre here in Dublin and and so much funding was going into the fight against organised crime here that Daniel Kinahan was being called out and and in years to follow in the High Court as the head of the Kinahan Organised Crime Group, a murderous drug dealing and weapons uh, dealing operation he was still going from strength to strength in the boxing world. And as a reporter, it was kind of strange because you had two trajectories, even in the same newspaper. You'd have one element of the media describing Daniel Kinnan every time he came up or every time this boxing or his links to boxing came up, it was the mob boss behind this boxing thing. And you had the sports journalists who were just ignoring it completely. And they were sort of writing about, you know, uh, the likes of Tyson Fury, who he would later sign to MGM, about his background and his famous comeback and there wasn't a word about Daniel Kinahan. So it was all very strange. And that's really how it's continued onwards. I mean, the boxing community, professional boxing at its highest level, has ignored the fact that Daniel Kinahan is involved and, and what his background is.
0: Hello there. I'm just after getting off the phone with Daniel Kinahan. Uh, he just informed me that the biggest fight in British boxing history has just been agreed. Get up there, my boy! Mm. Uh, big shout out, Dan. He got this done. But this this feeds into the narrative, the the spin that 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 Daniel Hankinson wants to to put out there. You know, it in your book. Facial clans, when you say, Daniel Kennett likes to play mind games, he likes to control and manipulate at all times. He's particularly dangerous because he has had the foresight not only to do that within his own world, but also to focus on the media who have been directly targeted by him. He's enjoyed some success, but while most public relations officers send out press releases, Kinahan does so on anonymous social media and encrypted emails where he claims to be someone he is not. So he's quite a manipulative figure. So you see the, the, the boxing promotion feeding into that whole thing of, of the myth of Danny Kinahan.
1: 100%. I mean, every time he steps forward, and, and most recently and probably what everybody would recall was when Tyson Fury called him out as the power broker behind the what would be, hasn't been arranged yet, but at the time he He felt it was the biggest boxing bout in history. And he calls him out as the power broker behind that. And what you see then is all the boxers and this huge, big sort of marketing campaign. We can see that in media, that that's what it is. But they're all coming forward with stories about Daniel Kinnan and how good a guy he is, how amazing an advisor he is because they don't describe him as a manager. And that's where the loophole is in the boxing regulations. You don't need a licence to be an advisor. You do to be a manager. So he's all of a sudden gone from where he was once described as manager and the trail is there. I mean, it's for anyone to see he's all of a sudden an advisor. So it's all very clever and and it's all very, it always works in tandem. You see Bob Aram, the, the Las Vegas promoter, coming out to sing him up. He said he was one of the best guys he'd ever met. And they all come out one after the other and there's this big campaign. Daniel Kinahan's a good guy. But then, he has to slip into the background again because there is a corporate problem for the sport to try and deal with big corporate entities. It's too uncomfortable.
0: We've spoken to people involved in the game and they've told us exactly what you've told us, mm-hmm. these people, but they are afraid to go on camera. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. Why are you going on camera?
1: Well, because I think it's right. I'm not threatened. I'm not... I'm not worried about you know these guys threatening me. You know I've I've been involved in you know terrifying situations my whole life, so it doesn't it doesn't bother me. Um, but I think someone has got to got to look out for the sport. They really need to look at at this situation very carefully because it's bloody dangerous.
0: And within the sport of boxing itself, you'd have the Barry McGuigan has shone out as, as one of the very few people who's actually willing to, to speak up and, and call out
1: Daniel Kinahan for who he is. One of the very few. I mean, there's no doubt that there's a lot of people high up in boxing who've become very entangled with Daniel Kinahan and I don't think they can get out of it. They have a problem. And. Um, In the last couple of years, I had a meeting with somebody, I have to be a bit careful, but somebody sort of quite close to him and quite close to that very high-end boxing. And um, he asked me, like, when is he going to be arrested? They all i was told a lot of them very high up in in professional boxing are hoping to god that the police solve the problem for him, for them and arrest him because uh, until they do they have to continue with that mantra that he's a good guy that there's you know he's done nothing wrong he's no convictions and they've kind of got in and they've no way out
0: so like uh, daniel Cannon, he's based in dubai effectively permanently now
1: Oh absolutely he moved there in 2016 around the September time so the regency happened in the February by September uh, actually the MGM still called MGM at the time the gym was raided as part of the the investigation into the murder of Gary Hutch but at that point he was gone as were the financial structures of MGM, which would later become MTK. They were both gone to Dubai and he hasn't been back in Europe since. Um, he got married there in 2017 at a wedding that has become quite famous because it's been brought up in a number of European organised crime court cases. Um, it was doubled up as a crime summit, basically, between some of the biggest mafias in Europe and it was appears to have been uh, under surveillance, the wedding. So he's lived out there and he's running his business while, you know, the Kinehan empire as such has been dismantled here. We have 60 associates of the Kinnahan organization behind bars. Same has happened in the UK with his main, um, you know, his main man in the UK behind bars at the moment, along with others. Um, It's still a wholesaling operation. And, you know, you get that big and all you have to do really is throw your money at it. I mean, that's just the way it is in drugs.
0: And is it... (laughs) Is it logistically? I suppose we've all got used to working from home in the last <laughs> yeah, yeah, eighteen yeah. months. Is it difficult to run a drugs operation from Dubai? That is where your primary market is—is is Europe.
1: Not at all. Sure. I mean, look, there was a time, and we go back to the beginning when Daniel Kinahan had street soldiers, and he knew them by name, and they were buying his drugs and selling his drugs from. But now he is wholesaling massive shipments into Europe and there they're sold and he, he's hands off from there on. So, you know, he's the he's the CEO of an enormous business that has really got nothing to do. He probably doesn't know any of the people on the ground anymore other than the ones who are still with him in Dubai.
0: You think that the net is getting tighter and the guards are, are going to get him?
1: 100%. I mean, I do think he has been given um, a couple of maybe months or years anyway of freedom extra freedom because of COVID but there certainly was a five year plan in place from 2016 which is now probably moved to a six seven year plan because of the pandemic but Kinahan is the last man standing from the European super cartel who have been brought down by the forces of Europe and the DEA the Australians and and a global kind of effort and he's it must be a lonely place for him now he's the last guy from all of that still left free free in Dubai where he's surrounded by bodyguards he is becoming increasingly paranoid there's only one guy he left he talks to um, his right hand man Sean McGovern and after that he's afraid to meet anybody he seems to be watching the clock and waiting for the time for his time to come Um, there's a thing called Expo going on at the moment in Dubai and I understand that they had wanted it cleaned up totally at that stage, but uh, to date, Kinnahan still remains free. But I think, um, you know, I, I think it's just a matter of time. There's an inevitability to his end.
0: That was Sunday World Investigations editor Nicola Town Nicola's book, Clash of the Clans, is available now in all good bookshops and you can listen to Nicola on our Crime World podcast. I'm Fiannaud Sheehan and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan with sound design by John Smith. Archive clips courtesy of independent.ie, BBC Panorama and RTE. You can listen to the Indo Daily wherever you get your podcasts.